Hello and welcome to the 2020 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 17, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Max Verstappen won just his second race of the season from his first pole in more than 12 months, but of all the things 2020 will be remembered for, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix isn't likely to be one of them. Mercedes was out of sorts, and a virtual safety car neutralised almost all the strategy to effectively decide the race on lap 10. Only Daniel Ricciardo made a success of an alternative strategy, and while Sergio Perez was aiming to do something different to try and win Racing Point 3rd in the constructor standings, an early engine failure ensured McLaren got the job done. To talk us through the final race of the season, I'm joined by F1 TV technical analyst Sam Collins. Sam, how are you doing? I'm good, Michael. How are you? I'm sitting at home with a beer, which you're not, so it makes me feel great about life. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, the time zone difference means I feel like it would be frowned upon if I were drinking a beer at this point in time, but maybe later on in the day, I will treat myself. It is the end of the season, after all. Uh, and an unusual end to, well, an unusual season, I suppose. We're all, we all know, and uh, some sectors indeed even love, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Uh, but not the winner we probably would have expected, not only based on the season to date, but on form at this track. It was Max Verstappen with pole and victory. Before we get into the details of exactly what made this race, I do want to talk about this circuit. First of all, we've been coming here for more than 10 years now, since 2009, and has typically earned itself a bit of a negative reputation for not being great for racing. It is a purpose-built track, pretty much specifically for Formula 1. Why it, Why does it seem so non-conducive to creating big Formula 1 Grand Prix? I think Formula 1 is, is, is still trying to answer that question. I mean, it's a little bit in the Circuit of Catalonia mm. vein of not being naturally good for racing. Though there is some good overtaking, some good battles that go on at Abu Dhabi, which Spain doesn't have so many of. Formula One was planning to have put all of its theories, all of its science into action at the Vietnam Grand Prix layout. That's the layout they thought would produce brilliant racing. And uh, obviously that hasn't happened for various reasons. The one that was the little bit, well, let's come up with an idea and see what happens, was the Sakir Grand Prix. <laughs> they tried this random layout and it works brilliantly. So I think Formula One's taken a lot of data away and realised that maybe Formula One circuit design isn't as simple as everybody thinks it is and we need to go away and have a good long hard think about how to change formula one circuits but i think circuits need to be faster and shorter and slightly more wacky and i think (laughs) we'll end up with some good racing i think that's fair i mean if you think about uh baku not that it's a particularly short circuit but when you take out the long straight i guess the rest of it is kind of short and it's just a bit different i mean now sometimes i guess there's value in just trying something different at least it stands out in that respect uh and it feels like this weekend we're you know, considering the circuit okay we got a race that didn't feature too much action on the track and then we also of course had the 2005 Renault screaming around with uh, Fernando Alonso in the cockpit that everyone was very keen to see made for some great onboard for on you. that point Michael that Renault right mm. it that was a car designed to run on groove tires it had soft compound slicks on yes. it was also running underweight and it also had just a thimble full of fuel on so don't let's not mm-hmm. try and confuse ourselves that suddenly we've got no progress since 2005. That car was not running Mm. in period specification. Oh, absolutely. And was still slower by the end of the weekend anyway. I think it was still several seconds. Started about eight seconds off the pace. I think that got down to about four or five. So absolutely. Uh, But interesting in that respect, I think, and this sort of goes to the point, is that it seemed to capture an imagination. And look, sometimes it's just that shiny and ironically new perspective. You haven't seen a car for a while. It's very loud, all that kind of stuff. But... It does bring into focus the changes F1's poised to make in 2022, doesn't it? Because it does show that 
some there is certain dissatisfaction with the way the formula has uh, arrived at this point in time and exacerbated by having a bit of a dull race on the weekend. But the balance changes in terms of new regulations, the direction the sport is taking in 2022. Do you think that's enough of a reset to satisfy a level of that dissatisfaction? The reset should improve the racing. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. The, the design of the new cars, the aerodynamics, I think they're going to look a lot cooler. Unfortunately, I think a lot of them are going to look very similar to each other, which is a bit of a shame for someone like me. Uh, but we've still got the different power units. We've got different mechanical approaches. So it's going to move the formula from being an aerodynamic formula to a mechanical and engine formula. Is that going to improve the racing? Yeah, it should do. I'd still like a little bit more technical freedom because I think a racing series where you have cars of different abilities Mm -hmm. will naturally produce good racing. So one's fast on the straights, one's slow in a corner. That's why I think we've seen quite good dicing between McLaren and Renault this year because they've got two cars with the same power unit but very different approaches to aerodynamics and chassis. And the two race really well together. So that's what we need to be getting to in Formula 1 is a bit more technical variety. But of course, I'm massively biased on that point. (laughs) But hopefully that's something that we can look at long term right like if we can bring this field together with a more locked set of regulations and over time hopefully open that out and 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 get that diversity again in the sport uh fingers crossed anyway we'll see how that goes now in 2022 delayed by a year let's look at this uh race weekend more generally though very good weekend for red bull racing not just because they got pole and won but because they seemed like for most of the weekend maybe friday practice excluded just the form car of this race. I don't want to start with the caveats, though, on this, but let's do it because they are pretty major. And let's start with the fact that Mercedes was a little bit down on power this weekend. How down on power were they? How much of an effect do you think that had? I mean, Paul was decided by only 25 thousandths of a second, after all. They were all there. All the Mercedes-powered cars were down on power because uh, the Mercedes power unit decided to start eating its MGUKs, <laughs> the MGU Kinetic, and that's something that dumps 160 kilowatts of power into the rear wheels. You turn that down, you're losing significant amount of performance. So all of the Mercedes were down on power. We saw they still had those reliability woes with the MGUK. George Russell, um, his car made made one just turn into sort of kibbles and bits (laughs) during free practice. Sergio Perez set fire to one uh, in Bahrain. So the team were really worried about, the teams were all really worried about it. So they had to lean them off. Red Bull haven't been that far off Mercedes on this sort of track through the season. So that little bit of loss of performance of the Mercedes really brought them back into sort of range of Red Bull. And the loss of performance of Mercedes's quick driver sort of eliminated him from the sort of equation as well. So it really was Red Bull's race to lose. I think interesting too here, and this is a, this is one of the, I guess, unusual or key functions of, of hosting a twilight race in Abu Dhabi, is that you do get one practice session that is really representative, and then you have the daylight FP1 and FP3. Uh, in second practice, Mercedes spent a lot of time, or more time than other teams, I should say, on the 2021 Pirelli construct, which they brought here for a final test, just to try and convince people that they should be happy about it after there was a lot of negativity in previous tests, but they're getting it no matter what they think. Uh, the soft tyre they seemed to struggle with by the time they got to qualifying. They didn't seem to be able to balance the car on that soft tyre. Was this a little bit of misdirection, do you think, from not focusing enough on it in FP2? Because that also proved not only decisive in qualifying, but I mean, left them behind in the race in the long run. See, I've got a theory on this. So Pirelli gave every single team a mandated run plan for the 2021 prototype tyre. Mm. And every team, bar Mercedes, followed that plan. But Mercedes cut it short by, I think, three or four laps, came in and put on the, the normal tyres and went and got on with the rest of their day. 
I've got a suspicion, and I said this in commentary, that somebody wandered down to Mercedes and had a word in their ear and said, you haven't done your mandated laps on the prototype tyre. You have to stick them on and go and do that run plan. So they had to stick them back on and go out and do what they were told in the first place to do. They did that. Then the red flags came out. That stopped, That interrupted that program. But I think they lost time because they had to go back and do something mm-hmm. that they thought they'd already done before. I think they were a little bit naughty and <laughs> somebody had a word in their ear. That, and look, fair enough. That's, uh, everyone's got to do the same thing and that all contributes for development for next season. But I think the biggest caveat if you like because it's pretty usual at this time of the season isn't it in the last couple of years that we look at Red Bull Racing getting stronger and think next year is going to be great you know they're going to be right on pace the regulations haven't changed hugely in the last couple of years next year they're largely the same in terms of the mechanical components of the car they're locked in in fact just about should we be getting excited about a Red Bull resurgence here or should we be considering the fact that Mercedes hasn't really developed this car since August being confident, I guess, in its ability and looking forward to next season? And should we expect the form to reset a little bit by the start of next season as a result? Because of the stability of regulation, you're going to get a a tightening up Mm. of the field. Mercedes, I'd be astonished if they weren't in front at the end, you know, at the beginning of next year. But because of their car concept, this long wheelbase, this low rake approach that they've gone for, they're running out of development scope for that approach, but it still is working. Now they're losing a little bit of load off the rear when you these these sort of tapered rear floors and some of the other little bits and pieces that have got to change. Yeah, that could go Mercedes way, but it could also go Red Bull's way. That's a little bit remains to be seen how that one plays out. I haven't heard too much on, from the teams about what they're expecting to gain or lose relative to each other on that. But there are some other interesting changes. If McLaren can manage to integrate the Mercedes power unit into the back mm-hmm. of its chassis, which is a chassis that distinctly wasn't designed for that power unit, it will be able to move up the field. And we've seen that that is a very, very fast racing car over a single lap, or at least if your name's Lando Norris, <laughs> whacking in last laps that are super quick. He can do that. If he's got a bit more power than the Renault, which is frankly the worst engine in Formula 1 other than the Ferrari at the moment... <laughs> he could move up to the front of the field with that. So I think you might see certainly a much bigger scrap for second Mm. in every single race, whether somebody's going to be able to challenge uh, Hamilton, assuming he's driving the car Mercedes partnership next year. Some tracks, yeah, maybe, but I think he's still got another championship in him. I don't think anyone will be too surprised by another Lewis Hamilton championship next year. And just to wrap up by looking at Red Bull's approach to 2022 as much as it has been 2021, comparing to Mercedes, which has switched off physical development on this car, I suppose, for this season. Red Bull's been very much pushing ahead. In part, I guess that's because they've been trying to cure the problems in terms of that loose rear end that's really afflicted Alex Elbert in particular this year, but the car in general. How much will that pay off, do you think? Of course, this is hypothetical. Into next season, they've said you know roughly 60% of this car will be next year's car. Is that enough for this much development focus to have continued through this year? Or do you think that will suffer relative to a team like Mercedes that is really just focusing on that next car? I mean, it's, it, it was a bit of a funny quote that everybody's repeated. 60% of this car is going to be the same as next year's car. Classic Christian Horner there. Mm just stating the obvious in a slightly more interesting way. (laughs) That's the same for every single car on the grid by regulation. In fact, 60% is quite a low percentage. I think it's actually the reality is that it's quite a lot more than 60%. Everybody's going to come with new aero packages. The front ends of the cars are going to be quite similar because that carries over. Mm -hmm. The flow structures across the rear are going to be quite similar. But you're going to see these new floors. That's going to change your rear end approach quite a lot. I think um, every bit of development that people have been doing at the start of this year 
has gone into next year. And that's why a lot of teams are still developing right up to the final race. And there were still lots of interesting bits and bobs appearing on the cars towards the end. Red Bull still haven't settled on their full design approach. So I think they're still experimenting a lot. Mercedes know what they're going to do. They've just been optimizing it, which is why they're going to get a bit of an advantage. Alpha Tauri could be an interesting one. They always sort of threaten to be a good performer and their developments have gone a little bit quiet. And that suggests, suggests to me that they switched over quite a long time ago as well when they realised they weren't really in the championship fight for third. They couldn't beat Ferrari. So, right, let's go and work on next year. That gives them a little bit of an advantage too. So I think you could see a bit of a shuffle of the order. We might see Ferrari become competitive again as well. They seem very confident about next year's power unit, which is surprising because yeah. it's this year's power unit with slightly new paint on it <laughs> well look sometimes confidence is just part of the equation so look it's not going to power them any faster but it might make them feel better about it so there's always something in that i suppose let's look at this race in particular max verstappen started from pole ace the start did pretty well at the restart as well uh meant he was very much out of trouble by the time the race reached lap 55 its conclusion that early stop on lap 10 despite radio calls between him or well, not between him and hamilton but from him and hamilton suggesting that the tires might not make the distance inevitably they did and that was the race pretty much done for him the only real threat theoretically having started from pole and having gotten away pretty uh, cleanly would have been potentially an undercut move he had two mercedes drivers behind him that was a, a numerical advantage but he just had the pace here, didn't he? It didn't seem like at any real point Mercedes was going to be able to threaten Verstappen's lead. The the, the early pit stop was a very brave move, actually, um, stopping under the safety car like that. All of the data that we had, and I, I've had a huge amount of data where I'm working, the the tyres, the hard tyre, shouldn't have gone that long. You'd lose a significant amount of, of, of performance towards the end of the race. So if Mercedes had stayed out with one of their cars... Verstappen would have been in huge trouble. What we didn't, you didn't really see played out on television too much because everybody was sort of gone onto the same strategy, was actually there was big degradation on the hard tyre at the end of the race. It really did drop off quite significantly. But because nobody near the front was doing anything different, you didn't notice it. So Mercedes, I think, made a little bit of a strategic boo-boo by not, probably Hamilton would have been the one to go for because he was the one who wasn't feeling it that, that day. He could have made a bit of an advantage and, you know, there was nothing to lose with his car in terms of points. They should have stuck him out, left him out, got track position, come in and run a longer strategy as originally planned, gone onto the medium for the last portion of the race. And I think if they'd done that, he would have undercut both Verstappen and Valtteri Bottas to win the race. It's interesting because it's not the first time we've seen this season we've seen synchronised early stops like this behind a safety car or whatever. It's not unusual in Formula 1 anyway. Everyone covers off each other roughly at that one-stop window, maybe a little bit early, of course. Are you surprised more drivers in general, more teams in general, considering so many did start on a medium tyre which should have run a fair way further than lap 10? didn't try that i mean we're going to talk about in a moment a couple of the drivers that did stay out for various reasons but there were very few of them uh, why is it that everyone is so easily convinced that the best thing to do in a one-stop race like this is just cover the, the simple thing is everybody in the pit lane pretty much is using the same software and the same data so you're, you're getting the same information and i'm lucky enough that i've got a setup in in the formula one uh, media and technology building but i've got all of the same data the teams have and i think i've actually got a little bit more so I can cover off where their strategies are going to go. And the reason I've got that system is that when you're watching the television programs, I'm telling the TV director, look, 
this car's going to pit on this lap. Get the camera down to the Mercedes garage. We're expecting these two cars to come in, so you need to have a camera in position. Get the helicopter positioned here. You can see. So we're running our own sort of race mm. strategy through the race and calling what calling out what the teams are doing in advance of what they're doing. So that works quite nicely. And this race weekend was actually lovely because the strategies were so clearly laid out in qualifying. Mm. And everybody was trying to go for the medium, hard, one-stop strategy in the top 10. And then those naughty little Alpha Towers came <laughs> out on softs in Q2 and forced about half of the top 10 to completely ruin their strategy and really get sort of strung out onto a two-stop. Lando Norris, for example, was really in two-stop territory. Had it not been for the safety car, he would have no way been able to make a one-stop work. He would have had to have gone for a full-on two-stop. We heard the radio calls at the start of the race. It was a very risky move by Alpha Tauri. It didn't really pay off for them, but it was entertaining and they'd got nothing to lose. But I think they're no longer on a lot of teams' Christmas cards list because of that move. <laughs> fair, fair enough as well. Uh, and I mean, you, you talked there, you've got a lot of data overlooking the strategies. You've got a decent record of calling strategies this year as well, including some of the more outlandish results. I feel like we should mention this. Uh, the result in Monza, speaking of Alpha Tauri, Pierre Gasly's win. You managed to call that one. I did. Unfortunately, I didn't do it in the pre-race show on F1 TV oh. because I, th- I thought even that was a bit too outlandish. <laughs> but just after we'd f- finished broadcasting the pre-race show, I'd been looking at the data and I just sort of looked at the Alpha Tower, looked at their start strategy, looked at where they were, looked at what else was going wrong, going on around. We saw the Mercedes were a little bit wobbly. Um, and I looked at their straight line, their speed trap data and their rate of acceleration. And that Honda does work really well on that sort of circuit. Mm-hmm. And I just walked into the production office and just sort of announced, Pierre Gasly will win this race. And walked out and walked down to the, <laughs> to the desk to cover the race. And the, the, fortunately, a couple of guys saw it and tweeted it. And then so I got to go around and say, yes, I did predict that. <laughs> um, I also predicted that Max Verstappen would win. Uh, I did do that on the pre-race show. I predicted Max Verstappen would win this one, but I think that was pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Um and I also predicted the cause for the safety car in this Grand Prix, uh, mm. though not with the car that I suspected would cause it. But I did say that there would be a safety car caused by an engine failure. The other bizarre one, um, which did happen, is I predicted a safety car being caused by stray dogs. Ah, And indeed, that did happen. I'd li- it's happened before in Formula 1. I'd love to know how many years it takes between those calls, you know, between um, dog calls. Apparently two races. Oh, well, yes. Also, we've had a very high time for dog calls this season. It's been a real uh, purple patch exactly. for Formula 1. There was one other element to Verstappen's win here, though, and that was, for the first time this year, Alex Albon, potentially his win anyway, we should say, uh, because he was close in this race. Uh, a little bit of a change for Alex Albon in the sense of running with those top three cars uh, with his Red Bull racing car, still unsigned, at least at the time we're recording here. Uh, that was important, I suppose, wasn't it? Because when we're looking at that end stage of a race, would have been very easy for Mercedes to take the pit stop gap they had over the midfield with Hamilton probably, perhaps Bottas, put him on some fresh softer tyres and then see what could have happened. Alex Albon hasn't been in this position for most of this season. It was crucial in this race. Would this season have looked particularly different? There are a couple of races I can think of, I suppose, where Verstappen would have been in with a shot had he had a more consistent second driver. Yeah, I think Red Bull was struggling because they were basically running a one-car team all year. That's very much a Red Bull trait. It's a bit like old-school Ferrari, but they were (laughs) running a one-car team. And that did limit them in terms of some of their strategic decisions. We did see it once earlier this year where basically Red Bull decided to use Alex Albon as a test car to see how the tyres were performing, Mm. ruined his strategy on purpose, so Max got the right tyres at the right point. 
good strategy, not very nice thing to do. <laughs> but I think with, I mean, even though you say he was close, he wasn't that close, was he? It's a bit like me saying I live close to Cambridge, <laughs> still a 45 minute drive. You know, it, it's not that close. He wasn't in the top three. He was in the vague reaches of it. I mean, it's like saying Lando Norris was close. Alex <laughs> Albon has been, I think, I think he's been under huge pressure this year and I don't think he's really shown what he can do. Mm-hmm. He's a very fine racing driver. And I think the Red Bull RB 16 has been designed very much around Max Verstappen's driving style, very much not around Alex Albon's style. And that's why he struggled to adapt to it. I don't think it's necessarily purely an Albon failing. It's a design, something that's been inherent to the Red Bull's design. Actually, they went too far because Verstappen was struggling with it too much as well. We saw that in Hungary. Mm. Um, had they had Albon been able to handle that car a bit better in Hungary they'd have had another car up front so when Verstappen was struggling Albon would be up there so Mercedes really didn't need to cover off Red Bull too much and because Hamilton has such an advantage over Bottas as well again it was it made life easy for the team from Brackley but with a slight winding back on the Mercedes power unit the Red Bull was right there because Honda have made great steps so it's I think that is a cause for optimism that you mentioned earlier. But if Honda can find a bit more next season, and, I, and my information is they found a lot for next season, mm-hmm. we really could see a bit more of a challenge. And just as a final point on the situation at Red Bull Racing, with Albon or any other second driver there, because we saw, of course, Pierre Gasly similarly struggle last year, and he's obviously doing very well at Alpha Tauri this year, or has done well, race winner, no less. Uh what is the what is it that makes that? There's the car, of course, on the one hand, as you say, it's a car that's very much designed for Max Verstappen. But it strikes me that that team environment has almost no oxygen for any driver that isn't Max Verstappen. Can you envisage? I mean, there's of course the rumor that Sergio Perez will find his way into that seat. He's a more established driver, I guess, a more confident driver given he has that history. But is there a situation in which another driver in that car? can thrive if they're not on Max Verstappen's level to take him on directly? Uh, I think it's not even about his level. It's about his driving style. That car, Max Verstappen can fight a car and live with a car that's twitching all over the place. You can see it from his steering input traces, which is another bit of data I get given in real time. It's lovely to see. Hmm. Um, but you can see, you saw it very much early in the year, that Albon's steering traces were much smoother, much, much more like Valtteri Bottas or a lot of other drivers on the grid, whereas Verstappen could soar away at the wheel and make the car dance through the dance around the track. That's not what Albon wanted. If they'd given a car that suited Albon, I think he'd been much quicker and Verstappen wouldn't have improved that much relative to Albon. I do think that if Sergio Perez were to go to Red Bull Racing, it would be something of a poison chalice for the Mexican mm. because that is a team that's built around Max Verstappen. That is a car that's built around Max Verstappen. And I don't think Perez's driving style suits that nature of the car. We haven't seen him drive a car that's twitchy like that anyway. So I think it, he would struggle with that car as well because it's Max's car. It's designed for Max. Um I, if I were Red Bull as well, I'd be very tempted to keep Albon because he'll politely struggle and get on with the <laughs> job, but I really, he won't cause trouble with the team. Whereas I think if you've got Perez there, he wouldn't be happy with that situation. He'd want to be the fastest guy. He'd want to go out and win races. Now he knows what that feels like. And actually, they, it'd be, they, he'd be very popular with the team as well because Perez has worked with an English team from that area for so long 
but I think he'd be able to ingratiate himself with the engineers and mechanics the way he has done at Racing Point so much. I mean, we saw the reactions after the Grand Prix that everybody was farewell Checo and they'd sort of forgotten this bloke Lance Stroll whose dad owns the team. Um, I think that conflict in Red Bull between Verstappen and Perez would be really quite toxic and I don't think it would go in the favour of Perez. I think it's really going to come down to the fact of how many cans of Red Bull do... (laughs) do they sell in Mexico and how many cans of Red Bull do they sell in Thailand? And the answer is Red Bull's 51% owned by a Thai company. I would be surprised to see them going for Perez. Perez, I think should be driving the Aston Martin next year because I think Mm. he's actually much quicker than Vettel in that type of car. So I think they, I think Aston Martin racing stroke racing point made a bit of a mistake there by going for Vettel. Um, But then Sebastian is a world champion. So We'll see. But back in the Red Bull days, that team was all built around him and not Mark Webber. So it's it's not the first time they've done this. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how those driver choices do play out and whether Sergio Perez does figure on the grid next season. Let's talk about the battle for third in the championship, won by McLaren. Started with a 10-point deficit before Abu Dhabi turned that around because Racing Point had a fairly ropey weekend, all things considered. Started with a disadvantage, Sergio Perez needing to start near the back with a power unit failure. Uh, well, yes, a previous power unit failure. Had another one this weekend. Lance Stroll kind of had a pretty ordinary race. Finished 10th, uh, passed in the last lap by Esteban Ocon. But McLaren, inversely, we could say that Racing Point lost that position, but really did win it. They got the maximum out of their car this weekend. As indeed you'd have to say, all season given, this wasn't really the third quickest car in pure pace terms, I think it's fair to say. Is this all just down to execution for McLaren? And what does that say about their immediate future? No, well, there's a few, there's quite a lot of points there. <laughs> so the first point is why did Racing Point get third in, so why did Racing Point not get third in the Constructors Championship? That's because they bolted on Mercedes brake ducts mm-hmm. to the rear of their car early in the season and lost a chunk of Constructors points. Had they not done that, had they done their own design work, hadn't copied Mercedes' car, they would have had those constructors' points and would have finished third in the championship. There's no real other way to explain it. Mm-hmm. The maths is very simple. The brake ducts defined the result of the championship, not the performance of McLaren. Then moving on to the race at the weekend, we had this really quite spicy showdown between those three, ta- three teams, Racing Point, McLaren and uh, Renault. Renault were a little bit more out of it and I didn't, don't really think they had much mm-hmm. of a chance. But there was some little games going on. So Racing Point bolted in a brand new shiny Mercedes power unit into the back of Sergio Perez's car, stuck on a set of t- hard tyres. He was going to go massively deep into the race. He'd have probably gone up to lap 45 on that first set of tyres, mm-hmm. switched to a set of softs and gone to the end and tried to get in and get those points and could probably get the fastest lap point as well. Because that power unit only had to do one single race, while you can't change engine modes at all, they would have put everything onto the highest mode going into the race weekend. Then they would have put everything into the highest, most destructive modes for the ERS system going into So the engine would have just been a grenade from the start. <laughs> and I think, you know, rather than switching everything to 11, they switched something in the, in the combustion engine to 12 and it combusted and <laughs> broke something in the oil system. and. Perez was out of the race after not very long. So I think they went a bit too aggressive on their power unit strategy, uh, which was a shame for them because they had something really special lined up. That left one racing point in the race. Lance Stroll, who, as you say, is a little bit ordinary in terms of, well, most of his races. (laughs) He was out running 
in a good battle with the McLarens, quite frankly, because I think the racing point is actually a faster car than the McLaren. Being last year's Mercedes, that's not a great surprise. Mm-hmm. In the pit stops, there was some proper jiggery-pokery going on by <laughs> McLaren. And I am astounded, quite frankly, that they did not get penalised for that. And I have no idea what what has gone on in the race control building because what happened is Carlos Sainz was coming down the pit lane. He looked in his mirror. He saw Lance Stroll coming up behind him, knowing that that is the car they've got to beat for the championship. He deliberately overslowed on the pit entry. I saw the data. He lost more than 7 kph on pit entry, went extremely slowly. Reason doing that, back Lance Stroll into, the Lance, into Lando Norris, who was running a different strategy try to get the racing point behind both McLarens. And guess what? It worked. So he was trying to make that double pit stop, double shuffle, not ruin the McLaren game as well. Sites comes in, stops. Stroll comes out, very lucky not to get an unsafe release penalty because mm. of that going gaming on that was going on the entry pit entry. I've no idea why Stroll didn't get an investigation for unsafe release because it looks textbook to me. Then they put the investigation onto Carlos Sainz. It was clear what was going on with McLaren. I spoke to Jack Aitken after the race about it, and he was saying it's pretty obvious what they're <laughs> doing as well. We all agreed it was fairly clear-cut. The FIA's judgment on that case, though, was that they'd reviewed all of the data because it wasn't available until after the race, which was odd because <laughs> I was watching the data in real time, and they do have the same access to data that I do. And I knew it was 7 kph difference between the two cars on pit entry because I'd seen it. We'd got the onboard footage of it. It was really obvious. We'd actually clipped up a replay. It went out and you probably watched it at home. And then they said, oh, well, nothing in the data showed that he slowed down excessively. Well, apart from the TV feed, the GPS speed trace, it was really obvious what science was doing. Um, and it worked. It was very smart team race strategy. It's something we've seen McLaren do before. They did it at Monza. They deliberately tried to slow mm. down another car to get them a pit stop strategy, get, get the double shuffle working in the pit window open so they didn't lose too much time and their competitors lost time. It was, again, another clear-cut case of very smart thinking from, I believe, the drivers. I haven't been able to go and check the team radio, but I do plan to do so. And the FIA say there was no team radio messaging about it. I think Sainz thought of this on his own, and it was pretty clever driving. Really impressive. Was it a sport, a very good sporting thing to do? Mm, probably not, but it was smart. And that that played out well for the McLarens. Then they just had a strategy that sort of worked. But I think the more interesting car out there, and we talked about it a little bit before, yes. was Daniel Ricciardo. Yes, absolutely. And just worth saying, one of the things we did miss out in terms of the broader battle between McLaren and Racing Point, we'll talk about Perez in a hypothetical sense in just a second, but Sainz was starting on that medium tyre, whereas Norris and uh, Stroll were not. How those all, all what were three strategies would have interplayed would have been really interesting towards the end of the race, but neutralized certainly literally in Perez's case and we didn't get to see it but Daniel Ricciardo was one of the well only driver in the top 10 to really do anything interesting or different I should say uh, in this race in terms of strategy one of the few drivers who did not stop during the virtual safety car uh, on lap 10 because he'd started on the hard tyre he was running really long essentially working that fact that it's hard to pass at Yas Marina turning that into a long overcut and that way he wouldn't drop himself amongst slower cars after pitting. That really worked for him. Really worked for him because he's quite good at managing the tyres, I think, which meant he could extend that stint. 
how did you read that strategy first of all? And you surprised that so few other drivers opted for that outside the top 10, given that that seemed like a good way to avoid that traffic. Ultimately, it was a screamingly obvious strategy mm. if you had the medium tyres on, but a lot of the cars with the medium tyres on was, sorry, a lot of times the guys with the right tyre on, the hard tyre, were struggling to make it work. He, Ricardo went super deep into the race and it was the obvious thing to do. It worked brilliantly. He got track position. However, it, everyone says how it worked really well. It didn't work. That wasn't the game. At one point in the race, we were predicting, because his pace wasn't dropping off, in really low degradation, everything was looking great for Daniel Ricciardo. He was about to go and make the right tyre choice, and we were sitting there going, this is good. This is really, really good for Ricciardo. His tyre his degradation graph was pretty much flat, and almost as soon as they, the Renault saw drop-off, they called him into the pits to make that, that late race pit stop, 15 laps to go. And that was pretty clear. We, we, we were on top of that. Had he managed to keep the pace up on the second set of tyres... He wasn't just on for a decent finish. He was on for a podium finish because at that point we were thinking that everybody else in front of him needed to stop again Mm -hmm. because those tires were not working. They'd gone too long on the hard tire. Ricardo, because he hadn't rolled the dice in that way, he could have put on a better set. He could have gone on the mediums or the softs. He could have gone to the end on them and he would have had a significant pace advantage. The other teams would have seen Ricardo's pace and gone, oh, hell, we need to come to the pits and put on better tyres to defend against that Renault that's coming screaming up behind us and will beat us all with ease. Um, I would have been shocked if he didn't get a podium. However, the Renault and Ricardo, once he came out on that next set of tyres, that second set of tyres he used, it just didn't work. The lap times weren't there. He wasn't getting the pace. And, yeah, he just couldn't make that second set of tyres work at all, which was really surprising. His lap times were actually slower than on the harder compound. So we were sitting there going, Ricardo's race is just fallen apart really so he could have finished much much higher up the race and as i say i think he could have gotten to the podium but the second set of tires the pace just didn't happen he, he he lost out they had the option to go onto the soft would it have worked our data said the soft tire wouldn't last 15 laps so that's why they went for the tire they went for but oh, they came so close to a brilliant result at renault but didn't quite work out for them. And uh, yeah, they got a good result, but it was could have been so much better. It feels like a pretty good summary of their season in general. They had a lot of potential, could have been better. It was okay in the end. Uh, disappointed to finish fifth, of course, in the constructor standings, but that was the way their season shook out. An improvement anyway. Uh, let's talk as well about Sergio Perez, finally, to wrap this one up, because this was, as we mentioned earlier... Should have been the show of the race, I suppose. Recovering from the back, something he's got a little bit of history doing, having won from last on the first lap only last week in Sakia, and has been in very good form. I mean, in general, but also lately this season, not least of all that race win. What do you think was possible for him? He started on the hard tyre. That did seem like the clear strategy the further back you were starting, especially if you had that faster car. Could he have made the difference to the championship battle on a weekend, even that Lance Stroll wasn't really at his level? Yes. In short, I think that strategy would have played out. Uh, He would have pushed the cars in front of him much harder. We probably would have seen some other engine failures had there been a bit more pace in the midfield. That could have brought out a safety car. That's what he was gambling on. He would have got the track position the way Ricciardo did with a faster car. And maybe that car would have worked on the second set of tyres. He was on for a podium, I think, had he made it work. But it would have been super action-packed. We saw it on the opening laps before Mm -hmm. it went pop. 
that we so we'd actually we were messaging each other about what to put together in the Formula One TV post-race show, what we wanted to focus on. And one of the requests was, can we have a Sergio Perez overtakes compilation like we did last <laughs> week because he's already on the pace and banging past cars. But then the bit next bang was, you know, his <laughs> power unit. So that was that. Uh, but yeah, he was on for a really good, exciting race. And had he managed to make all the overtakes, he would have made it work. Alex Brundle was getting really excited uh, because he'd noticed a little a mode push on the, and not an engine mode, an ERS mode push on the steering wheel of the racing point, which Perez used to great effect in Sakia, which ultimately was what destroyed the engine for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix because Perez just killed that engine to win the Sakia Grand Prix. But that's fair enough and you get a race win don't you so i think he did the right thing but then he was going to try and do the same with this brand new engine and just blitz it all the way through but i think he blitzed too early and well bang it was a terrible shame a real disappointment i thought when he uh, went out of this race uh, lacked a little bit of action still got all the important results of course uh resolved here naturally it was the last race uh, wasn't the action-packed last race I suppose some wanted, but it gave us some intrigue and did wrap up the season in a neat little package ahead of 2021. Sam, it was a real pleasure to have you on the show to talk about it. Cheers, mate. That was F1 TV technical analyst Sam Collins. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Play it for free on iOS and Android devices. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favourite podcast app, plus all of your social media channels. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. And that's it for another season of Formula One. 2020 has been a wild and unpredictable year on and off the track, but through the chaos of the pandemic and the crush of 17 races in 24 weeks, Lewis Hamilton emerged victorious, equaling Michael Schumacher's record seven championships. But final mention must go to F1 management, the FIA, the teams, and all of the tracks for pulling together to get this season done in such unusual circumstances. Here's to a better 2021. Big thanks to Nathan Harper and Beer Mogul for making this podcast possible and of course to our 17 guests for lending their time and expertise to the show and of course a big thanks to you for sticking with us through this crazy year i hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast as much as we've enjoyed making it and wherever you are we hope you're keeping safe and well my name's michael Amanato. i hope you have a terrific christmas and a happy off season and new year and we'll chat again in 2021 for another season of the strategy report